This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hi, Ellis Pod fans. It's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off could be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome to The Lobe Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Hello and welcome to episode 7 of The Lobe Strangers. Thanks, as always, for listening. My guest for this episode is Chris Hammond. Chris may not have played as many games as he would have liked, but he was part of one of Swindon's more eventful periods in the club's history. He was coached by Glenn Hoddle, John Gorman, Steve McMahon and Andy Rowland. It may have been 12 minutes, but Chris is one of only 26 people to have played in the Premier League for Swindon Town. Chris played 11 times over three seasons at Swindon from 1992 to 1995, scoring two goals, including one in Italy. Talking to footballers like Chris Hammond encapsulates what I'm trying to do with these podcasts. Talking to the legends and the terrace favourites is something I very much want to do as well, and I look forward to those episodes but I'm also fascinated in learning of the experiences of the rest of the squad, the people that may have not played or played a handful of games. After all, they are all part of the same squad. We discuss Chris's Swindon career in depth, plus the usual before and after. Anyway, it's time to sound the hooter for episode 7 of The Low Strangers. Enjoy. Thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. Who did you support as a child? Uh, Spurs. Ah, right. So that is early 80s Aussie Ricky Villa and things like that? Uh, so yeah, I was at the 81 um, Cup Final with my dad. The, the first game, he went on to watch the replay um, as I went off on a cycling trip in France, unfortunately, with the school. I was only, I think I was 11. And then I was at the 87 Cup Final with my dad again and the 91 Cup Final with my dad. Good days out. During that era, who were your, who were your Tottenham heroes? Well, Glenn Hoddle was a massive, uh, not influence on me because I could never ever play like him, but I, I loved to watch him play. Um, Gary Lineker, I, I really enjoyed. Mickey Hazard, Ozzy Ardiles. Uh, Graham Roberts, another fantastic centre-back who I would have hated to have had to play against. Lots in that team. I love that team of the early 80s. 
And how often, you said you went to Wembley to watch them, did you get to White Hart Lane that much? Not really, no. I remember being once at White Hart Lane. Because we live in Jersey, we didn't really get across that very, uh, that often. But I remember my dad taking me to the lane for an Arsenal match, which we won 5-0, which was a rarity back then. But I remember Steve Archibald and uh, I think got a hat-trick that day. And maybe Garth Crooks weighed in with one or two. I can't really remember, to be honest, but it was a good day. So when you were growing up on Jersey, what was the standard of football like at the time? It's difficult, really, because it, you've got nothing to uh, relate it to. You obviously think it's pretty good. And back in the, the 80s and, and early 90s, it was really good, uh, or relatively good, because we had so many um, English, Scottish, Irish young lads that are over doing the building work, um, electricians, plumbers, all these types of different jobs. And they increased the standard of local football. So it was fairly decent, but nothing like the UK, obviously. Do you remember what your sort of goal scoring? Because you played for St. Peter, correct? I did, yeah. Just before I came to Swindon, I was playing for St. Peter's, yeah. And can you remember what sort of sort of goal ratios you were you were doing back then? Sort of if you played 10, would you score like six, seven, eight? I remember Kat, uh, one year, uh, the first year I signed for St. Peter's, Chris Jones, the manager, had said to me uh, that he was quite friendly with Ozzy Ardiles and if I did well for him, then he might put a word in for me. So I kept a log of games and goals and I think I scored something like 44 goals that season. Uh, I don't know how many games that was over, but not not that many. I was just I was scoring for fun back then. I was, uh, I was fit and young. <laughs> Curiously, did the emergence of people like Graham Lasseau in Jersey and Matt Letizier in on Guernsey create more interest in Channel Islanders at the time? Well, from outside of Jersey? Yeah. From I'm not sure. I think we were still a bit of a backwater back then. Um, and it, quite with, especially with quite an insular attitude over here that that no one was ever going to be good enough to, be, to play professional football. And that was... I remember that quite vividly being installed in young players' heads. Um, and that I think that sort of... Um, stunted young players' progress over here because after having been away and, and you know not having had a, an amazing career by any means, uh, I got to see what the standard of professional football was, your basic standard of professional football, and, and I could come back and see the young lads over here playing and remember the young lads that I played with before and thinking that there was a whole host of them that would have made um, decent careers in professional football given half the chance well you're lucky enough to represent Jersey and you go to the Island Games um, you score a hat-trick against Greenland um, I suppose it's easy for sort of people on the mainland to giggle at such fixtures but it must have been good to be part of those sort of competitions it was great fun yeah I was, a, I was part of the first um, the inaugural Island Games in the Isle of Man I think it was 1985 we took a, an under-16 football team there because football wasn't particularly established and then I think it was 90, yeah it was 91 that we went to Orland and it, it, yeah people will laugh at it it's a little bit Mickey Mouse but for us and the other smaller islands it's, it's, it's it was a really good it was a great it was great fun it was good competition at our level um, and we ended up I think the Pharaohs won that competition if I remember rightly I got injured against some other team and I had to take a back seat for the final three games yeah. but the Pharaohs at the time were the team that had I think been Scotland recently in some sort of European qualifying group so they weren't there were no mugs and I think Jersey finished third that year we got a bronze medal but That's there's all the different sports there was athletics there was swimming there was tennis archery it's, it's a whole group of people from all these different islands come into one place and, and there's all the sports obviously you can go and watch if you want as well as yeah, get involved in your own sport and then there's huge parties going on as well in the evening it's just a really good sense of fun seeing what Faroe Islands have done you know that they're, they're in the UEFA sort of qualifications of Gibraltar are there now do you think Jersey should 
have a chance or the Channel Islands should have a chance of uh, competing at a higher level or do you think it's just about right? Uh, that's a tricky one. There's a lot been um, said in the papers over here about that and I've, I've just sort of sat back and um, listened and watched what people have said about it. I don't, I don't know if the infrastructure is in place over here to support a UEFA bid, to be honest. I don't think the standard is, is, is up there. Um, I think we could embarrass ourselves. Well, that's really fired up the home crowd now and Swindon buzzing here. And because again, rather uncertain with that cross and the shot almost comes to Mitchell. It's another goal. Incredible. How did your move to Swindon come about? Oh, well, like, uh, I think I said I signed with St. Peter's and Chris Jones, um, the ex-Tottenham forward, uh, who was originally from Jersey, he, he'd come back here and was, was running um, this local team. And I was playing for someone else at the time. Um, and I remember getting called to go and meet him for a chat. And we're only talking about local football, so it was nothing major. So I went to meet him at a friend's house, actually, and um, he said, I want you to come and play for St. Peter's. And obviously I was impressed because he'd been a professional footballer. So his opinion was worth more than, than probably anybody else's at that point. And I signed. And he had mentioned, you know, if you do well, he says, I think you, you're good enough. I think you've got the stuff that's needed to become a professional footballer. And, and it's something that I'd always sort of dreamt of, never thought I'd do, not in a million years. So I thought, why not? You know, I've, uh, I just won the league with the team that I was playing with, but I thought, no, I'm going to give it a chance at St. Peter's with Chris. So that first year, we did really well. Um, I think Ozzy Ardiles finished at Swindon. Uh, so in my mind, the whole chance had gone. And it was the following year that I was doing well again, and St. Peter's as a team were doing well. And Chris approached me and said he'd spoken to Glenn Hoddle. Uh, I think Duncan Shearer had been sold and he was looking for a forward. And Chris had mentioned my name previously. So um, Glenn had rung him to say, can you send him over for a couple of weeks? So Chris asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, yeah, straight away. I was delivering wine, I think, at the time in Jersey. So I, I came over for two weeks trial. I think it was in sort of late Aprilish time um, of ninety, maybe or ninety-one. I can't really remember. And um, played a few games. Uh, I was pretty bad. I remember the last game was at White Hart Lane actually, and, I, and it was a one-one draw, and I managed to score a goal. I know much about it, but I did score a goal, and uh, they sent me home, told me to get fit and come back in in the pre-season, the following. Uh, sorry, the following season, yeah. So I came back to Jersey and Chris um, had me at his, his soccer schools throughout the summer. I didn't work. I just helped out at his soccer schools. And in return, he, uh, he put me through my paces and sort of got me fit. And then I came back to Swindon and, uh, and that was it, really. Wow, so just that one contact was, was, there was no other clubs. It was just Chris Jones, Swindon. Yeah done was the aim to compete because you're what 21 at the time was the yeah. aim to compete with the first team or were you initially told to bed in and get used to being a professional footballer i, I wasn't told anything um i was sort of um I, I was i was hopeless to be honest with you i was really quite bad and i knew it myself and it was a lack of confidence on my part so i played i think my first game was well, I know my first game on trial was the Wiltshire Premier Shield, where we, we beat Trowbridge. It was on some horrible Wednesday night down in Trowbridge. And I remember finishing that game thinking, Jesus, I didn't really get a touch in that. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on. And then the Tottenham game um, gave me a bit more sort of inspiration, even though I hadn't played brilliantly. So the first season I'd signed, I, uh, I was being left out of the reserve team. And I knew why, because I just wasn't that good so no one really said anything um, and then um, Glenn sent me off to Cheltenham 
on loan. And the first game I played for them was against Gloucester City. Uh, so that was that was quite rough. <laughs> I sort of opened my eyes a little bit. Uh, and then he sent me off to Morton in the Marsh, which was... Um, uh, I really quite enjoyed it because it reminded me a bit of home. It was this small little club. Uh, Mark Lawrenson played from at the back. And it sort of... It gave me a bit more confidence. I started scoring goals and... And I think Andy Rowland came to watch one game and he said, you look, you're coming back. You're too good for this level. We want you back. And there was a Luton game on the Saturday, I think it was. And I started on the bench against Luton. And, and then that's when the confidence started coming once, because I'd been so bad initially in the resis and then started being left out. I thought, my God, I'm going to be sent home here any minute. When you, when you first joined the club, how did you... How did the teammates sort of help you settle? Because as you've mentioned, some of your heroes are in there. I was talking to another sw- former Swindon player called Simon Ferry, and he told me when Charlie Austin, who's now in the Premier League with um, Southampton, when he joined from Pool Town, he didn't need any assistance. Was that a similar experience for you? I was in a bit of a weird position because I was 21 and I wasn't anywhere near the first team. I sort of became a bit more friendly with the younger lads. Um, so I became friends with the likes of Andy Thompson and Marcus Phillips and, and Wayne O'Sullivan, who were the top end sort of um, YTS lads and first year pros. And I never really sort of made any strong friendships with the, with the first team. You know, we were all, we were all buddies and stuff, but I never really. Uh, I, I'd go out for beers with Tomo and um, Marcus and the younger boys. So it was a little bit, I was in a, I was sort of in limbo land. That's how I felt. I knew I was older and I should have been mixing and, and playing with the first team, but I wasn't. So it was a, it was a little bit difficult that way. So Glenn Hoddle's your manager. He's one of your, your heroes as a child. What were, what were your impressions of him? What was his style of coaching like? He was really, really good to me. Um, he gave me more than enough time to try to, to sort of bed in gave me a lot of chances because like I said I was pretty bad to start with his uh, his coaching was amazing just watching him train for me was was amazing his touch and, and just how he knew how to play football yeah it was amazing watching him training with him and playing with him uh, and also not just him the, the likes of Nesta Lorenzo who was there when I first got there he was amazing to, to watch and, and train with. Um, because you come from Jersey, I mean, there was we had good coaches over here and we had decent players. But this just goes up a little notch. And, and also your own ability as well. Because you've obviously, you know deep down you've got, you've got something that someone said to you, you can be a professional footballer. And then you start playing every day, you start training, you start watching people, how they control a ball, how they move, how they pass a ball. And, not, and before long, you, you're doing it naturally yourself. Yeah, that's, that's just sort of like a natural progression, I found. And how important was John Gorman to Glenn Hoddle's success there? I mean, with being just on the fringes of the first team, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, I'm not like an authority on how they work together. But John always struck me as a really good sort of uh, go-between man between the players and Glenn. Glenn obviously had to have a, had to keep himself a little bit distant from the players, even though he was one of them because he was the manager. And even though um, Glenn was the boss, he trained as a player while John took the sessions, and um, as much as he could, sort of let John get on with it. But John, I thought John was fantastic. He was, he, he was very approachable, obviously very knowledgeable, and, and a nice guy as well. And does the same apply to Andy Rowland, who you spent more time with, with the reserves? Andy Rowland was, yeah. Um, initially, I was, I was petrified of Andy Rowland. Um, he's, he's quite a hard taskmaster, and you knew you were in for it. I mean, if you'd lost, you knew you were coming in the next day, and you were going to get uh, beasted for it. And he gave me a particularly hard time for a long time uh, because I was pretty crap. Uh, but when I started 
playing well for him. He uh, he really got on, on my side and, and the support he gave me was was amazing. The top trying to turn his man. Oh, what a goal! A fantastic goal by Yatfiotov. Looking at the, the, the forward line that we had during that first 92-93 season, you had Craig Maskell, Dave Mitchell and Steve White as your seniors, and then also Sean Close as well, and then there was Paul Hunt. How optimistic were you? I mean, you were saying that you weren't up to it, but was there any sort of motivation by the coaches and the team to, to try and get you having those first team minutes? No, again, um, it, it was difficult. I, came in, I think I came to Swindon at the wrong time, even though it was a great time for Swindon, I came at the wrong time because um, within a, a season or a season and a half, we were up in the Premier League. And although I played uh, against Luton and Barnsley, in, in, I think with the two games I played in, in that run into the Wembley game, and, and did all right, I think, the step up the next season was Premier League, so Jan... Uh, was bought so I was never going to get a run I knew that and and you just go further down the pecking order so really that that whole Premier League season I knew that I was just going to be in the reserves and I had a a decent season I think from what I can remember and I got a chance to play at Newcastle because there was no one else left I think the kit man was on the bench you know, it was one of those days. Uh, there was no away fans up at, at St James's Park, and we got humped seven-one. And came on as a sub and just ran around. I think twenty minutes didn't touch the ball. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's twenty minutes more than a lot of other Swindon uh, players have uh, achieved um, in time. We'll go back to ninety-two, ninety-three, and that debut against Barnsley, which um, Luton, sorry, where you did get uh, eight minutes in, but I think. Town score within a minute you coming on and you provide might be a little fluky looking at the uh, highlights but you you provide the assist yeah absolute fluke as well and, and do you know what I couldn't believe after the game I was getting interviewed and I remember seeing the advertiser headline Chris Who and, and it was like I'd done this sort of death flick into the path of Paul Bowden who I think scored the goal yeah. coming up from left back but in reality I remember Buzzer going off down the right I think I remember him whipping this crossing, and I thought, right, here's my chance. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna smash this one in with this header, and um, I completely fluffed it. I think it came up the side of my my head and went behind their right back, where Zippy had made his run, and he stuck it into the bottom corner. And it looked like I'd, uh, it looked like I'd flipped it on for him, but you know, if the truth be known, it was a pure fluke, and it was an attempt at goal. Despite like the advertiser and probably Radio Wiltshire sort of um, wanting you to talk to them and things like that, was there any sort of inkling that you would play again that season, or was it a surprise that you got the last game of the season appearance against Barnsley? I think I got a, a start against Barnsley because Dave Mitchell got injured in the warmer, and even to this day, I'm not sure if that was just a fix to give me a game. I don't know, um, but I was I was named as sub at the hotel. Um, and then we got to the ground, and then Glenn said to me, oh, uh, uh, Davis injured himself in the warm-up, you're starting. So I had no idea that I was going to start, but I, I felt comfortable until the, until the end of that game when I got taken off, and I wasn't particularly impressed. And then we had the, uh, the punch-up in the dugout. Oh, wow. Who with? Uh, John Gorman. Yeah, was, was it just like one of those heat at the moment as you're coming off? Yeah, it was. I, um, I played, um, I played. I think I got taken off around about 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd sort of run myself into the ground. Uh, and I'd had the feeling that the uh, Maskey up front was sort of holding back a little bit because it was a nothing game. And we knew we had the playoffs coming up against Tranmere. Uh, and he hadn't really done too much. And I, and I, and I was getting pulled off after 80 minutes and Mickey Hazard had gone off before me and I, and I, was, uh, I wasn't very happy about it and so um, and later on I was told I had no right to an opinion 
Uh, but anyway, I was walking towards the dugout and um, I think I was letting my feelings known to John Gorman. And uh, I then throw my shirt, I think I took my shirt off or something. And, and anyway, the stand that were, were looking directly at me were all cheering. And I got into the, uh, the dugout and I said to Mickey Hazard, I think I kept moaning to Mickey about it. And then all of a sudden I got this punch on the side of the face and it was John Gorman. So the other stand opposite all saw this and started cheering. Uh, and I just sort of sat there and Mickey looked at me and whispered, he said, I haven't seen anything like that in 15 years of professional football. And I went, I know, can you, can you effing believe it? And I got another one, whack. So I thought, right, I'm just going to keep quiet here. So that was the end of that. Uh, game finished, we lost 1-0, if I remember rightly. Paul got back on the coach and sat down in the back, sulking thinking, God, I made a complete ass of myself there. Anyway, we're on the way back and um, the beers are out and John Gorman's come down the back of the, the coach and sort of sat amongst us and, and said to one of the other lads, oh, yeah, I gave, gave Chrissy Hammond two of my best shots and he just sat there and took them. <laughs> but it was like, it involved me in the conversation as well. So he was obviously sort of trying to make up and make a joke of it. And, and that was fine by me. So I think the next day or the day after at training, uh, uh, after training, Glenn pulled me to one side and he said, I just want to talk to you about the Barnsley game. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, I just want to let you know, he goes, I don't expect that sort of behaviour off a rookie. And I said, okay, I understand that, Gaffer. I apologise. And he says, look, everyone gets a... Uh, upset in the heat at the moment, he says, but, you know, that sort of behaviour is unacceptable. I said, yeah, point taken. And that was that. That was the end of that sort of issue. In the documentary of the 92-93 season, That's Football, which I think was on Channel 4, um, during the playoff second leg at Tramier, they have a lot of footage in that on that bench up at uh, Prenton Park. And it looks like a hostile atmosphere. You've got like Mickey Hazard and Steve White pacing. You've got like uh, um, Eddie Buckley and uh, Kev Morris smoking his pipe and John Gorman's going spare. So I imagine if you do anything out of line, you, you probably get a whack around the head. Yeah, yeah, it's understandable. I mean, he wouldn't get away with it today. Um, in today's climate, I think if anybody saw that, the TV cameras picked up, he'd be all kinds of trouble. But back then it wasn't an issue, and it, and it still isn't today. I mean, people have said to me about it that have watched that documentary and that gets a mention. Because we had uh, Carl Ross from Channel 4 following us for the whole season, and he brought it up with John and said, you know, you're expecting players to go 100%. And then, you know, when tempers boil over, you smack them in the mouth. How do you justify that? And I think John went on to say, well, you, you treat them like you treat your own son, blah, blah, blah. So it, it's, it wasn't an issue for me. And he was probably right, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't have no right to an opinion. I'd only just played eight minutes at at home against Luton and this was my full debut mm. yeah. so to start whinging as I was getting dragged off this wasn't my uh, wasn't my finest hour to be honest well Swindon move on to the playoffs um, they get through past Tramier after two entertaining games and then they go to Wembley what was your Wembley experience because you are there I've, I've seen you know you are in the uh, celebrations at the end so you're all tailored out with Kevin Horlock and Sean Close Nicky Hammond etc what are your memories of the day uh, I just remember, I remember it being an amazing day. I remember because we went up the night before, we stayed in a hotel somewhere. Don't ask me where, but we stayed in a hotel somewhere uh, before that. Um, and on the way to Wembley, I remember the lads choosing songs, I think. They had to choose a song. Um, someone from GWR, I can't remember his name. Oh, God, he has sort of curly hair. I remember he was going around all the players individual players asking them for their favourite song anyway and that's what I remember about the coach trip to Wembley Wembley I remember walking out on the pitch before the game 
because uh, we, we were, like you say, we all had our suits, and I was just amazed to be part of the whole thing anyway. And then we all went back in the changing rooms, and obviously the grounds filled up. And I was late. The teams went out. We were supposed to follow up the old tunnel, turn right, and then walk around to the, uh, the dugouts. And it was it's not Stuart Mack. Something like that, anyway, from GWR stopped me at the top of the, the tunnel and asked me a few questions for the radio. So I was sort of left by myself to walk all the way along past the Leicester fans to the bench. And the abuse I got walking down that track was, was, was hilarious. That's what I remember about the beginning of the game. And then the game everyone knows about, it was, it was just a complete sort of roller coaster. And then a great finish, great atmosphere. Everyone's running on the pitch. I remember the scenes in the dressing room, uh, leaving Wembley, the beers on the coach, and pulling off the M4, and the roads just being lined with people. Uh, all the way into town, took hours to get into town. And then we had some sort of um, dinner, can't remember where. <laughs> I'm talking like some sort of 80 year old, I don't know, like 60 years ago. Like it was at some sort of hotel. And I was flying out to Cyprus the next day. I booked a holiday with a mate of mine from Jersey. Uh, so we had the, the dinner and all the drinks and stuff like that. I remember um, actually getting in my car. Uh, and the plan was to go and see the girlfriend at the time in the old town. And the old town was absolutely jumping full of people, hanging off roofs and coming out bars. It was absolutely jam-packed. And as I'm driving through the old town, she'd never been behind the wheel. I bumped straight to the back of another car. I thought, Jesus, here we go. And the guy jumped out. I had this Wembley suit on, and he was like, hey, just carry on. So I managed to pull around and, and made it to the girlfriend's house, luckily. And the next day I went off on holiday. So you're in so you're in Cyprus, and Glenn Hoddle goes? Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing him on the news. So how do you process that? Well, Glenn had um, given me a two-year deal towards the end of that season. So I knew I had a two-year contract. And I was I was, I was, was quite upset. I thought, oh, no. Because you know, he was sort of starting to like me. I, I really liked him. He knew me as a player. And my initial thought was, oh, no, someone else is going to come in. They're going to think I'm rubbish. And that's going to be the end of it. And um, without knowing what was going to happen, you know, with John taking over, no, I didn't know at the time what was going to happen. I just sort of, uh, I just sort of shut down and enjoyed the rest of my holiday, and I was going to worry about it when I got back. Well played, Hoddle. that you know John Gorman you know the, the issue with, or the incident in the tunnel I'm sorry in the dugout um, John Gorman's appointment hindsight being a wonderful thing was it the right decision? Well I didn't at the time know because I didn't know any better um, but in hindsight yeah it, it, it was definitely the wrong decision because there, Swindon had a lot of older pros that had been around the block you know a long time and, and I, I I noticed it in training that John just didn't have the authority that Glenn had had the year before, and I felt quite sorry for him in a way because he was, you know, he was doing his best, but some of the guys just didn't have the the sort of respect for him that they probably would have done if a new manager had come in. You know, there's a little bit of fear there because you're going to have to start fighting for your place. I think a few of the players were a little bit complacent. He knew that they were the best players available to John, so there's not a lot he could do about it. Do you think that's why Colin Calderwood and Dave Mitchell left? Well, I think they'd had a sniff of. Um, I think I think I think Colin was was good enough to go and play for. You know, where did he go? He went to Tottenham, didn't he? I he think. did, yeah. Yeah, 
He deserved that chance, I think. I mean, he was an outstanding player. Him and Sean Taylor, I think, for most of that campaign. So guys like that deserved a shot. And I think maybe Colin saw what was coming. Uh, I'm not sure about Dave. I don't know where Dave went. He went to Turkey, Izmir, and then and then rocked up at um, Millwall a couple of months after that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, those guys would have known a lot more about what was going to happen the following season, what could possibly happen the following season than I ever would. So mm. I, I just, you know, I didn't know. I just went along with what was happening to me, to be honest. Well, Dave Mitchell, Sean Close and Paul Hunt leave. Maskell leaves in the winter of the Premier League season, but we get Jan Fjortoft. Andy Much comes in, and as you've mentioned, Keith Scott as well. Later in the season, Frank McAvenny turns up. Was it frustrating? To go, were you like in the background going, here I am, I'm here. Pick me, pick me, but all of these players are coming through? I was, yeah, because um, I was doing really well. The, the reserve team was doing really well. There were some good players in that. And we all felt that we, we deserved a shot. And that's maybe um, a bit naive or a bit arrogant, I don't know. Um, but because the first team weren't doing particularly well each week, um, I, think, I guess uh, a lot of us thought we could do better than that, either, even though we probably couldn't. That was the um, that was a feeling amongst a few of us, I think. Well, Jan Fjortoft almost leaves, doesn't he? Because he can't score to save his life to start with, and then he can't stop scoring later on. I think a few of us thought, what you know, what, what do we have to do? Do we have to start missing twenty chances a game to get our chance? Or, or what? it was one of those. I think that's just the way football seems to work. Why didn't you go on go out on loan during the Premier League season? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because nowadays, I mean, they don't. They, I mean, I guess reserve team football was far better standard back then. The combination league was, I mean, it was past its heyday, but it was still very competitive because you're playing the London sides and things like that. But it just strikes me as bizarre that you know we're a top twenty odd team and they're not sending players out to third tier or fourth tier level. Yeah, that didn't really happen. Um... I told you the two teams that I got sent to the year, year or two before were Cheltenham, who were, were a conference team at the time, mm. and this Morton in the Marsh. But I actually don't remember anyone else going up there. I think um, there was talk of Sean Close going to Bournemouth, mm. back on loan. I'm not sure if he ever did. Uh, AD Vivash, I think, may have gone somewhere on loan. No, it wasn't really an option, as I remember. You've mentioned your one game um, of the Premier League season, which happened up in uh, Newcastle, the 7-1, where there's no fans, as you've mentioned as well. I mean, it's a drub-in, but like I said, they're 20 minutes that not many other uh, footballers in a Swindon Town shirt can ever say that they've had. Is that game kind of like just one of those things? Is it something that you look back and go, you watch Match of the Day or whatever, and you go, I wore that Premier League badge on my sleeve? That's crazy. Do you still have the shirt? Is it is it a thing for you, or is it just a game? Yeah, um, I, I have the shirt. Yeah, I, um, I gave it to my dad, actually. Um, and he died um, two years ago, so I, I have that back. Um, and I think there's a couple of other shirts and stuff. Yeah, I do... I mean, it gets mentioned over here in the local paper every now and again because they do um, articles on uh, prof- uh, lads from the Channel Islands that play professional football. Mm-hmm. And obviously you've got Leticia and, and Graham. So, uh, but there's a lot of others now playing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more opportunity for these young lads to get away. There's lots cool. more clubs that have relationships with the, the clubs like St. Peter's that have quite strong youth academies and um, there's more scouts coming to Jersey so there's more opportunities for for, for lads to get away but the, the the Premier League thing always gets a mention you know oh yeah and Chris Hummel played against Newcastle as a, a huge substitute whatever year it was uh, and yeah I am, I am proud of that for sure because I thought you know I never once 
thought they would even play professional football, let alone play in a, in a top league, even if it was just for that sort of brief 20-minute embarrassment. Um, so yeah, I am, I am, I am proud of that. But you know, it's, it's becoming a little bit embarrassing hearing about it now. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you cover, um, you, you you keep an eye on sort of Challenge Islanders in England and elsewhere. Um, do you look at modern football now and you see seven substitutes named on a bench? Do you think, bloody hell, I wish I wish that was the case when I was playing? Well, I wish the wages had been the same. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, sometimes I look at the Premier League and I think. I mean, it's really exciting. It's probably the most exciting league in the world, I would imagine. But sometimes I find it a little bit sterile as well. I prefer watching championship football, to be honest. It's mm-hmm. a bit more the sort of blood and guts about that. And I think that's what football's about. Sometimes the Premier League football is, is like I say, it's quite sterile and dull. Swindon were quick out of the blocks against Notts County. Too quick for keeper Paul Rees, who allowed Chris Heyman to score his first league goal. So when they go down, they concede their 100 goals, it's, it's done. But the new season, your third season, we're back in the second tier. Um, we're among the favourites to get promotion. Some are being Moncur and their moves to Manchester City and West Ham, respectively. Um, we bring in Mark Robinson and Joey Beecham um, in what is for Swindon extortionately high fees. Was there plenty of optimism within the setup after the Premier League season to bounce back? I don't I don't think so. I don't think anyone. I I don't remember that being a a goal for anybody. I think a lot more. I think people are a lot more realistic. Like I say, I wasn't. I was just on the fringes, but I wouldn't imagine that that was a, the number one priority was to get back into the Premier League. I don't think that. I don't think that was going to happen. I've got to ask. You might not have associated yourself with him, just as another teammate. Um, but Joey Beecham, because he is Oxford through and through. He turns up yeah. after his uh, very well-known um, brief stay at West Ham United. Was he absolutely focused on Swindon Town, or was he? Did he find himself in a situation where he couldn't go back to Oxford? So he, the next best thing was a more local team like Swindon. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I like Joey. I think he was he was a unique character. So much in you know, as much as professional footballers go, he was quite quiet, quite introverted. Obviously, massively talented. Mm. You could see that in training the whole time. But again, it's really difficult for me to give an opinion because I'm not you know, I don't feel like I have the right to give an opinion on someone like Joey because he was far more talented than me. But we we used to um, we used to talk about Joey and and it did look like his heart was somewhere else for sure. There is a competition um, in your third season where you do get a little bit of a run out, which is the Anglo Italian Cup, and I really love this competition because it is so bizarre. It would never happen now. Um, you get your first goal for Swindon um, away at Ascoli. We lose three one. I think it's a penalty that you score. Do you know who scored the hat trick for Ascoli? Uh, Oliver Beerhoff. Yeah, correct. Who would a year later um, win the European Championships at Wembley against the Czech Republic? How was yeah. how was the experience going over to Italy and uh, and playing those games? I loved it. I absolutely loved it because I knew that I had half a chance of getting a game and the travel, staying in the hotel. I remember we were playing Venice, I think, or Venezia, whatever yeah. they call themselves. And we had to get a boat to the to the the ground. It was on a separate island. I remember the mosquitoes being the size of seagulls, um, sitting on the bench, and me and Andy Thompson slapping these mosquitoes on each other's thighs as the game was going on. Ascoli was great. We had a game of head tennis on some beach somewhere, if I remember rightly. <laughs> and yeah, I got a goal. And. Um, I, I got pushed forward for that penalty so I wasn't going to offer myself up for it I don't think there were many people there but they were quite mm. they were quite hostile bunch anyway and it was at that end and anyway someone said you go for it so I, I remember putting the ball on the spot looking at the keeper and pointing to his bottom left hand corner and uh, thinking what are you doing Chris you idiots you're going to make an absolute knob yourself here but I've done it 
Anyway, I, I ran up and I actually was intending to put it in his bottom left hand corner and scuffed it and it rolled into his right hand corner. <laughs> but luckily he'd gone to the left. So it was another real sort of fluke of uh, Town's form dipped significantly um, in this season. Uh, John Gorman uh, is sacked in the November and one Steve McMahon arrives. How different was his approach to management and to yourself? Well, it's straight away, we, I remember we, um, I think I played against Marine in the FA Cup third round and he watched that game. Uh, and then there was another game I think I was involved with the following week where he was manager. And then we all got sent to see Ricky Hunt, who was the MD of Burma Castro. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and a new two-year contract was on the table for me. And, and I had to go and speak to Ricky Hunt about it, which, which was a bit weird. I, I didn't... It was different, put it that way. You know, I mean, he was another big name. He was another big name from my childhood. Obviously, that Liverpool team that won everything. A little bit scared of him as well. Um, but he, yeah, he didn't really have too much time for me. I think I played. I played a game. At, I played Notts County. That's right. We played Notts County, and I scored. And I think we won three 0 maybe. Correct. Yeah. And I did all right. So the next game was a live match at Wolves. I think it was the last game of the season. Yeah. And and I thought I had um, I thought I had a pretty good game there. Me and um, Pete Thorne played quite well up front. And that was the end of that season. And I think we all got put on, I remember, uh, I think I've got a back page of an evening advertiser somewhere, the headline was Swindon Town for Sale. And it was literally the whole squad mm. of people that Steve McMahon had put up for sale, whether they be free or for a sort of small fee. And I remember driving back from Wolves after that game thinking, yeah, this isn't, this doesn't look good really, to be honest. So I came home. Um, for the summer and decided that I wasn't going to go back. So I rang John Pollard, the secretary at the time, and said, look, I'm thinking I'm, I'm not going to bother coming back here. And uh, cut, you know, cut long story short, I came back and we sorted out uh, a deal for this contract that had been signed. And that was that. I left. I stayed in Jersey. What was the logic of... Um... I mean, I say this respectively, of course, because you, you don't feature that much, but they're going to give you two more years. Yeah. That seems bizarre, given that, you know, you're not 20, you're what, about 23 at the time. I mean, is it because you were doing enough? Did they see something in you, or was it, it was just about retention? I don't know. No one really spoke to me. That, that's what I found really weird. And, you know, we got sent to see uh, the managing director of some oil company mm. to organise the, the contracts arrangements or deal and I, I hadn't spoken to Steve McMahon at all. Andy Rowland was pushing for me, he was doing well for me, he wanted me in the team because when he took over, I think he was interim manager for a while, he had me involved in the squads all the time. So and Ross McLaren as well, he, he sort of fought my corner a bit. Um, but I I remember having a conversation with McMahon when I came over to sort out the the contract arrangement, I remember him telling me that I was going to probably be sort of fourth, fifth choice striker, even though playing up front wasn't my preferred position. And I just thought, okay, you know, I thought I've had enough of this. I was starting not to like football. I thought it was becoming a bit of a drag, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It wasn't working out as I'd liked it to. And there was no chance of a move as far as I could see. Whenever Whenever I see your name... I think of one moment, and it's after the um, Knox County game, in fact, after you scored the goal, uh, BBC Radio Wiltshire, whatever they were called at the time, interviewed you after the game, and they, I think the commentator was like asking you about your optimism, about staying, and you, and I'm only a kid at this stage, but I just remember you were very like, meh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> no, we'll see. You didn't sound optimistic at all, and well, you've just explained all the reasons for that but I'm just blown away by the by a two-year deal but it doesn't surprise me of that era and the ownership of how they operated but absolutely crazy that last game against Wolves it must have been good having like people like Wayne O'Sullivan and you had like Jamie Pittman Ben, ben Worrell who I imagine they were a bit younger from that um, youth team set up but they were very much around the year before so it must have been good to see them and Eddie Murray getting, get, getting minutes yeah 
Yeah, it was great. And it was great for me because it was a little bit more, uh, you feel a little bit more comfortable around the lads that you've played with for so long. You feel, you, you gel, it's much easier to play in a game like that. And uh, I thought we did well. You know, it, was a, it was a decent game. But it was great to see them playing, yeah. Yeah, and it was... Chances. Yeah, it was it was a hell of a game because um, Kevin Horlock gets sent off and then yes. they score the penalty and then we when Peter Form goes straight up and he like instantly equalises. It was it was a, it was a hell of a game. Kerr had made the run ahead of him. This is White. We've lost the marking. Now Mark. the club it's 23 years since you since you left Swindon do you have any regrets or do you have any fond memories when you look back do you keep in touch with anyone from that era I don't um, I've had a couple of sort of Facebook conversations with uh, Ross Karen mm-hmm. um, Aidy Whitbread I saw I saw Colin Calderwood over here when he brought the Spurs youth team this is a few years ago now mm-hmm. um, regrets uh, I can't say I, d- I do have regrets. I mean, there's regrets in the way that I didn't get a really long football career, uh, but I know at the time I'd, I'd had enough of it. And looking back, I'm sort of really quite proud of becoming a professional footballer in the first place. Mm. So I'm, I'm so happy with that. And the way my life has gone after that, um, it's probably worked out for the best to be honest so I had a 14 year career as a paramedic which I probably wouldn't have got if I'd, if I'd stayed around playing football for too much longer and your career as a paramedic takes you all over the place no? yeah yeah I was in Afghanistan in 2009 on a, on a sort of training secondment we were teaching on more remote trauma medicine in, in Kandahar airbase so that was good a bit different to uh, getting the gossip from the treatment room with Kevin Morris <laughs> yeah you know that was the highlight of the week going to see him in that treatment room you could, you could learn a lot of stuff in that treatment room in 10 minutes Chris thank you very much you're welcome good run by him and now that's The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure 24 7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hi, Alice Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant like Darren Ward. Or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 